Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you this morning. My name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here at Liberty. Thank you, Pastor Bobby, for praying for us and with us. If you would take your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to make you do double duty this morning, and also with a separate finger or ribbon, whatever you've got, 1 Corinthians 13. Hebrews chapter 10, we'll read a few verses there, and 1 Corinthians 13, we'll look primarily uh, using these texts uh, to look at this morning, why Sunday mornings? Why are we here? What is the purpose for our gathering? While you're turning there, I do want to just make a brief comment uh, regarding uh, Bernie. As Bobby was praying for her, she has moved to Prestige, uh, the acute rehabilitation uh, place on Mountain View, and uh, she's in room 11, and so we haven't sent that out on email, but if you would like to go visit her, uh, that's where she is, and uh, taking visitors, and uh, continue to be praying for her and her family as we've sent out. Uh, A couple days ago, I was visiting with her, uh, one of the first days she was in the hospital. Without trying to be presumptuous uh, about her condition, we knew uh, she was being put on comfort care. And um, I asked her, Bernie, are you ready to see Jesus? And she says, yes, I have trusted in him for a very long time. I love him. Last night, I was reading Romans chapter 8 to her. And at one point in the passage, she was... Uh, sleeping while I was reading most of it, which is fine. Some of you do that as well. Just kidding. Wow. Wow. This is how it's going to be today. And during part of it, Romans chapter 8 reading, I just paused and she said, praise the Lord. So much good uh, in that. And there is a sense for Christians, right, of envy of one who is near to seeing Jesus face to face. We continue to pray uh, for her and for those who are caring for her. Uh, Bobby mentioned 40 Days for Life. One encouragement we'd like to give to you uh, is that as a church, if you've never prayed before, like he said, please ask someone, ask one of us uh, as pastors or elders to go out with you, uh, and we would love to do that um, so that it would be hopefully less daunting. You would have uh, a friend, someone that you know out there. It's always a good idea to have a friend or a family member with you uh, if you can, uh, but also if we as a church uh, or individually, if there is a a commitment you would like to make, uh, at least saying, I would like to be out there praying one hour a week, one hour a week. And the course of 40 days, uh, that would be about six hours. And so just being able to say, I'll take one lunch break. So it might be 50 minutes, you know, getting there and back or whatever it might be. But just considering what kind of a commitment would we want to make a week and a half out of where it will start. Uh, Next Sunday, we'll have Carrie Hansberry, who leads CareNet here with us and uh, opening up the beginning of a baby bottle drive so that at the same time our church is going through 40 Days for Life, we're also remembering to care for CareNet in the midst of it. And both with a similar mission, but different tactics of how to engage. And so we want to remember them while we're going through 40 Days for Life. And we'll bring Carrie up on stage and be able to ask her a couple of questions about the relationship between CareNet and 40 Days for Life and to be able to uh, show the friendly relationship they have with one another and and be able to hear more from her as the new director. We'll be glad to have her with us. And they'll have a table out in the lobby you can uh, look at and grab a baby bottle as you come in uh, to the service next week. Well, if you would stand with me, We'll read Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll begin in verse 19 this morning. Hebrews 10, and beginning in verse 19. The author of Hebrews, coming to a conclusion at this point, says in verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more 
as you see the day drawing near. And then turn over to 1 Corinthians 13. We'll read just a few verses there. If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Verse 3, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. This morning, as we look at why Sunday mornings, we want to look at these two passages uh, in some of the points that we'll be mentioning, just to see how God calls us from uh, what movement of God does he call us to interact with regularly one another? And how is it that we are to be shaped in our actions and motivations in how we engage with one another when we do gather? But first, I just want to take you back to an anniversary of mine. On June 25th, 2005, I married my favorite person in the whole world. It was a wonderful day filled with a beautiful bride, an incredible music, a historic church, Downtown San Francisco, everything was wonderful. Sarah's got to pick out all the decorations. We got to choose music. We had incredible musicians, a big pipe organ at that church. I can no longer sing Be Thou My Vision the same way. Because as the men walked down, it was very quiet. I don't remember what was playing, but it was quiet. And it continued to get bigger and bigger so that when the doors opened and Sarah's standing there and she's about ready to walk down, pipe, organ, trumpet, all these instruments joined together with this beautiful uh, arrangement and she walks down. It was wonderful. That day was also her grandma's 80th birthday. So during the reception, not during the ceremony itself, we sang happy birthday to her grandma. Now, her grandma's turning 80. She would expect this to be her day, right? But it wasn't. It was our day. It was a day where we got to stand up in front of the altar and commit ourselves before God to one another in covenant relationship with each other until death do us part. Her grandma didn't get to pick out the flowers. We didn't ask her grandma any opinion on Be Thou My Vision or a different love song that we should walk down to. It was her grandma's birthday, but it wasn't a celebration for her grandma. And her grandma gracefully had her role and held her part well. The same is true when we gather on Sunday mornings. This is God's service, not mine and not yours. This is an opportunity for us to come collectively into God's presence and to be able to worship him in the way that he has chosen, not me. Not us, not a denomination, not anyone else other than God himself. This morning we'll look at four ways in which God has orchestrated the Sunday gathering and his purposes in it for us. We look first at God is the one who initiates worship. We saw this in Hebrews chapter 10. God initiates worship. It says, since we have confidence, since he has opened for us a new and living way, through the flesh, since we have a great high priest, then let us not neglect the meeting together. Let us encourage one another. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. But these things flow as a result of the initiating work that God has done on our behalf. Since he brought you into a relationship with himself, You now gather together as the church. You've been brought into my body. Now gather together as the body here with one another. Worship is not our creation. 
It is not the result of a mad scientist's lab experiment, nor was it something we thought up to do for God because we thought he might like it. And like a birthday present that you're pretty sure that your friend is going to like based on other things that she has liked, but you're not quite sure, so you're still hesitating if you're even going to give it because you know you would actually really like it. It's not like that at all. Worship is not a birthday present for an omnipotent deity. Just like last week in talking about God being a relational God, and we went to Genesis 1, so too today we'll start in Genesis 1, tracing a theme of God and his calling people to himself in relationship, in worship. This time we want to trace the theme of God initiating people, being able to come to him. Before God created anything, no one was able to come to God except God. Before the creation of the world, let's point out the obvious, there was no worship. There was community. There was perfect unity in the triune Godhead, but there's not worship. There's only God. In creation, God walks with Adam and Eve in the garden. He initiated their creation, didn't he? When we read the creation account in Genesis 1, it doesn't say that mankind thought it would be a good idea for God to create him. But God, let us make man in our image after our likeness. God initiates the creation of his people. He initiates contact with them. He initiates walking with them in the garden in the cool of the night. He initiates worship by the giving of the law to them, which was, don't eat of this tree, but instead do this. God told them what to do. He told them how to live. And in so doing, said, if you want a relationship with me, this is how you then must live. Well, we know the story, and the fall comes soon after, the fall into sin, where now worship coming to God is impossible, isn't it? Because while God is omnipresent, which means he's everywhere, all at the same time, God collectively is located in the garden where he was walking with man and woman. And yet that fellowship has been broken. And now what guards the garden is cherubim, angels with flaming swords, a clear sign that says, do not enter. Worship is now impossible. Man cannot come to God. They cannot draw near to him. He is a consuming fire. The garden is guarded. And later on, as God initiates with his people, with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, with all of the offspring, to bring them, to make them a people unto himself, God is the one who is drawing them to himself. He comes to Abraham. Abraham does not come to God. And all of this continues to reiterate the theme that we see throughout the scriptures, that God is the one who initiates relationships with people. He's the one who draws them to himself, the very fact that we have the word of God in our hands this morning means that there's a God who initiated you being able to know who he was. Otherwise, we're left to what is in our own seven pound, three pound gray matter in between our ears. We don't know what a God is unless we have a scriptures. We can make one up ourselves or make one with our hands, but it wouldn't be the God of the universe. We only know about him because he has given us his word, because he initiated with us a relationship. God continues to work in a way with his people after the fall, and as God brings his people out into the wilderness, he makes a tabernacle. And the tabernacle is not just something where he says, if you've read any of the Old Testament, where he says, hey, just go out and pitch a tent in the middle of the woods, and I'll meet with you there. You get the thing set up, and I'll be there. Because if you've read through some of the Old Testament books, all of a sudden you go to chapter after chapter talking about tapestries and colors and poles. And you feel like, didn't I just read this yesterday or three weeks ago? We're still talking about gold poles and the gold on this and this instrument. And this is what this will do. And what we begin to see is that God in initiating worship with his people is very specific. This is how you must come to me. God is not allowing his people to come any old way that they please. But there is a separation and a divide that God says worship must be in this way, the tabernacle in the wilderness, where God comes to dwell with his people, they cannot enter it or draw near. 
God comes and he inhabits it. But only one can come in, and only at certain times, and only in certain ways, and only in certain places. God then brings the tabernacle, the worship laws, the temple and its sacrifices. But in reality, through all of those things, man still cannot draw near, like we see the Hebrews author writing and saying that we can with confidence. Because now in Jesus, when God himself comes in the flesh and God himself sacrifices himself, becomes the tabernacle, and then his temple is broken for us, he opens the way for us that we can have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. It's God who initiated his son coming and giving his life for us again, not us asking or initiating redemption to come in that way. But God comes, and God makes a way possible for man to be able to worship. And it's through the blood of Jesus, through his own flesh, as the author of Hebrews wrote and we just read, by a new and living way he opened for us through the curtain. Not a curtain that we read of in Leviticus. Not a tapestry that's all these pieces of cloth put together in a specific way, but a curtain that is his flesh that has opened for us, and now we can draw near to God and worship. But it is key for us as God's people to hear again and again from the Old Testament scriptures on how God works with his people, and that is he initiates worship. And God this morning has initiated worship. In one sense, we can say, I didn't come to church. I was drawn to church. I was drawn to gather to worship. And for so many of us, it has become a pattern of life. Either we want to come, or maybe for some of you, you are drawn by a physical human person who is actually bringing you to come. But some of us want to come, and that pattern has been built up for so long that we see the benefits of coming regularly and of worshiping. But there was an initial part, and maybe even still to this day, for you, that you know God is drawing you to worship. This week has been a tough one. I need to be in the house of God this Sunday. I can't make sense of what has just happened. I need to gather with the saints to hear the word of God being read and preached and sung. I need to see what God is doing in and among his world, that I might filter and discern what God is doing in and through me. Number one, God initiates worship. Number two, number two, God orders our worship. We've sort of mentioned this as we were talking about the tabernacle in the wilderness, but God orders our worship. All we know about God, we know because he has revealed it to us. We shouldn't assume that we can figure out how to worship a God on our own. The audacity to think that I, one out of seven billion in this world right now, out of how many billion who have ever existed, I can figure out how exactly I ought to worship God. No, we love that God has revealed that to us. It takes so much weight off of our shoulders and allows us so much freedom in being able to worship him as he desires. It's like the person who says to you, spouses, this is really helpful. Here's what I want for Christmas. And they tell you, so there's no guessing game. Guess what? If I tell my wife and she gets exactly what I told her, I am so happy that I got exactly what I wanted. I don't want to be surprised with something I didn't want. I'd rather have exactly what I asked for. Call me crazy or selfish maybe, but I think that God is the exact same. He told us how to worship him and he wants us to do exactly that. We don't need to be creative. Hey God, I thought of this way. This is why so much is written about in the scriptures about God's people being assembled by God to worship and how that must be ordered. Have you ever wondered about Abel back in Genesis chapter 4? How did Abel know what offering to sacrifice before the Lord? The scriptures doesn't tell us, but God must have not just met with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening to walk in the garden, but there must have been instruction at some point as to how they were to come to him, and even after the fall, how they were to come to him when they had sinned. Because Genesis 4 says, And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. Same, another book later, we have the incident with Israel and the golden calf. The laws regarding the tabernacle and temple worship, the laws surrounding the sacrifice and 
feast days, all of the laws of how someone could come into the mediated presence of God clearly shows that God has not left worship up to us to try and figure out or to decide, but he has ordered it according to his will and revealed it to us in his word. One author states, the golden calf incident shows that sincerity is not enough to make our worship acceptable. The second commandment isn't merely a restriction on worshiping the wrong gods. It also forbids worshiping the true God in the wrong way. When you look at Exodus chapter 32, where the incident is given of the golden calf, Aaron fashions it with a graving tool from all of the jewelry and gold that the people have given to him. Then when he makes it, he makes a proclamation and he says in Exodus 32, verse 5, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. He made this image. He made this idol that they might, the people of Israel might come and worship the Lord with this idol. He wasn't worshiping another God. He's worshiping God falsely and in a wrong manner. The regulative principle of worship is one in which is a posture regarding the essential acts or elements of corporate worship. It is a way of saying we will gather with the church to worship in ways that only do what Scripture commands us, in the ways that God has told us that we ought to worship Him. We call this the regulative principle. This is what is regular. This is what we as God's people will do, and we won't get creative to add things that are extra-biblical to the elements of our worship. The Westminster Confession of Faith written several hundred years ago, writes this, the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited to his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. Now, some might critique the regulative principle and the Westminster Confession of Faith as saying that sounds awfully stifling. Some might even say that sounds boring. I'm creative. Creative people would say, I'm a creative. I'm a creative. I'm an Enneagram such and such. God gave me the gift of creativity, and I want to use that in worship. And to that we would say, absolutely you should. So six days a week, your creativity of painting and welding and building ought to be used for the glory of God and for your worship with him. That's Romans chapter 12, verse 1. In everything we do, we are worshiping, whether that's through creative skills or practical skills or security skills or pragmatic things that you enjoy doing and you benefit the people you work with and those you serve. But not on Sunday. Not when the church gathers. The regulative principle is not stifling, but as we mentioned earlier, it is freeing. We are not called to be creative in finding ways, new ways to meet with God. In fact, in the Bible and throughout history, that usually leads in a bad direction, like to a golden calf. Usually leads to gross sin or arrogance and distance from God. The regulative principle... John T. Rhodes writes in his book, Reformed Worship, he says it allows us to be free from any crazy ideas that pop into someone's head, free from being effectively forced to do things that are against their conscience, and free from anyone's ultimate authority. How can you imagine being a part of a church where you go in every Sunday and it's something completely different? Now, we're not talking just a song is done in a different style. That's not an element. That's a style. That's different. But you walk in every Sunday, and last Sunday was we're going to read. And this Sunday, instead of reading Scripture, we're dancing to Scripture. And and the following Sunday, instead of reading or dancing to Scripture, we're going to build a chicken coop to Scripture. So as someone reads, we're going to have hammers and nails, and we're going to build. And you're laughing, but it's not funny. Right? We don't want to leave that up to someone's creative idea where they can come up with anything that they want. Our creativity is boundless. Just look at how many videos and things are up- uploaded on YouTube every single day. The creativity that man can come up with would be uncontrollable. 
And so God says this, according to my word, this is how I am to be worshipped. And we're not being forced to do something against our conscience because what one person might say, this is worship, might be for you something that you say, I can't do that in good conscience. And to be able to say that this is not what God requires from his word would free someone from not having to engage in that act of worship that they believe to be wrong. And it continues to allow God to be our ultimate authority in all things regarding his church. Remember the first point, he initiated worship. So he should govern our worship. So he should be the one who tells us what it is that we ought to do when we come to him. Following our Protestant Reformation heritage, we summarize these elements that are given to us in God's word as to read the word, pray the word, preach the word, sing the word, and to see the word. And that is by means of the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and baptism. Matt Merker in his book on corporate worship And the Nine Mark series makes a helpful distinction between elements of worship, forms of worship, and circumstances of worship. You might say, what does this have to do with anything? But it it begins to be extremely helpful for the way in which we view what it is that we do. Because sometimes the waters can get muddy. And we want to be able to use these various words to keep the elements as primary focus. The elements of worship. We're praying, we're preaching, we're singing, we're reading scripture. Those as primary elements. This is what we will do. But regarding the form of those elements and how those elements take shape, instead of it being a command from God's word, there's wisdom for God's people. And then when regarding the other circumstances of worship, there's prudence. There's the ability to understand we can disagree with other churches. We can start our service at 1015 and somebody else start at 1030, and no one is right or wrong in that situation. That's just a circumstance of how we're going to worship. But if the Bible calls us to worship God by reading the word, praying the word, preaching the word, singing the word, and seeing the word, then those elements must be there and no others. And it's easy, right? We just have those. There's no creativity that's added to elements. We have to have announcements. Announcements would not be an element that is seen in God's word. You must do announcements. We could do away with announcements. Some of you might like us to do away with announcements. Some of you might like us to do away with something else. Again, a missions update is not an element, a core element of how we must worship when we gather. We do it for the benefit of the body and for you to be more informed in how to pray for your missionaries, which does lead us, Lord willing, to prayer. But the how we do them, the form of worship is not an element. It's a form and it is a matter of wisdom. Let me illustrate it with a car. A car requires certain things to run. I'm not a mechanic, so I'll stick with something easy. It requires tires. If you, have tires on your, if you don't have tires on your car, your car won't move, right? Simple. You have to have tires for the car to move, but what kind of tires you get is completely up to you. You just, you have to have tires. You can get all season tires if you want, snow tires. You can sipe your tires for better tread in the rain. You can get wide tires. You can get cool, whatever you want. All of a sudden, you can go bananas with creativity on how you get those tires, where you get those tires, but you have to have tires. Tires would be an element of worship, but the where and the how and the what they look like would be a form of worship. They can look differently, but the how or the element must be there for the car to run. So form looks like, do we read the word, uh, do we read the scriptures together as a congregation or does one person read it like Elaine did for us this morning? Uh, It might also look like, should we pray extemporaneously Or like Pastor Bobby did for us this morning, he wrote it out. I'm guessing he had something with him to read it. So he wrote it out instead. Should we have planned prayers or only ones that are spontaneous? The Bible may not specify what forms to use. And honestly, some might be wiser than others. But scripture gives us principles, wisdom that guides us into seeing which form might be better to glorify God, to edify the saints, and to proclaim the gospel. Lastly, circumstances, like I mentioned, are questions like what time we should gather on Sunday mornings? What temperature, temperature should the building be? Should we stand or sit at different times in the service? And I guarantee if we polled you right now, everyone would have a different opinion. How many times we should stand, how many times we should sit, what temperature it should be. 
Now, lots of churches order their services for the unsaved. They take an approach that instead of a regulative principle of worship, where they only look at what the Word tells us to do, they instead will fit their language, sights, sounds, and elements to what someone who is not a Christian might like, what would make sense to them, what would draw someone who is not a Christian, who doesn't normally attend church, but what would draw them to a service? What, what should we say to that? It's not the regulative principle for sure. It most often goes by a word seeker-sensitive or a seeker-type service. Well, James K.A. Smith gives us a helpful analogy to see this seeker mentality and how we should view it. He says worship needs to be characterized by hospitality. It needs to be inviting. That's true. Absolutely. But at the same time, it should be inviting seekers into the church and its unique story and language. Worship should be an occasion of cross-cultural hospitality. Consider an analogy, he says. When I travel to France, I hope to be made to feel welcome. However, I don't expect my French hosts to become Americans in order to make me feel at home. I don't expect them to start speaking English, ordering pizza, and talking about the New York Yankees. Indeed, if I wanted that, I would have just stayed home. Instead, what I'm hoping for is to be welcomed into their unique French culture. That's why I've come to France in the first place. And I know that this will take some work on my part. I'm expecting that. I expect things to be different. And indeed, I'm looking forward to the differences. So also, I think, with hospitable worship. Seekers are looking for something our culture can't provide. Many don't want a religious version of what they can get already at the mall. This is especially true of postmodern or Gen X seekers. They are looking for elements of transcendence and challenge that MTV could never give them. Rather than an MTV, he says MTVized, I mean, that's hard to say, MTVized, I don't know, version of the gospel, they are seeking for the mysterious practices of the ancient gospel. This is one reason why Anglican and Orthodox churches are growing rapidly among Gen X. is because they don't want to come into a church that has catered everything for them. They're not Christians. They want to come to something and go, what has this church historically believed for the last 2,000 years or longer? Give me something I can't get already. And all too often, churches can give in and say, we'll give you whatever you want, iPad giveaways, cookies, coffee bar. We'll get everything that you can have so that you will just come in and we'll cater the whole thing to you. The question is, what happens to the worshipers? What happens to the people who are saying, I need to be discipled and built up in Christ? What happens to the word of God that needs to be preached and sung and read to the people? Worship is not for the unsaved. In fact, the unsaved can't worship but worship is for the Christian. Now, an unsaved person can come to worship, but they can't genuinely worship until they have already, in faith and repentance, come before God himself genuinely. We certainly wish for the lost to come to our services, to hear the gospel, to repent of their sins and trust in Christ. That is for sure. That is why we seek to be hospitable. But we can't stray from God's word on how we worship so as to include those who are not truly worshiper. The seeker mentality does what we want. It scratches our itch, sometimes of feeling guilty for not evangelizing. So instead, we push it off into the church instead of worshiping how God wants. John T. Rhodes says that the logic of making our services accessible for non-Christians is like making a wedding more accessible to lonely hearts and singles by not having a bride or a groom. And like Abel in Genesis, when our worship comes before the Lord as he commands, then the Lord receives our worship done according to what he has revealed and from a heart that is seeking to serve and to please him. So God initiates our worship. God orders our worship. And that is a wonderful thing. Wonderfully freeing to know that God is pleased with our worship when we do it according to his word. Thirdly, God receives our worship. I think of all four points, this is the most staggering. That God himself, the creator of the cosmos, who made every single person, who has made every single thing that we see, receives worship from us. 
John 4, 23 says, but the hour is coming. Jesus is saying this to the woman at the well and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. The initiating God who orders our worship is also seeking people to come and do it in the exact way that he requires. The Father is seeking, he is desirous of people to worship him in this way. Again, this shows his initiation as the one who is seeking them, but it also shows he desires their worship and receives it when it comes to him in spirit and in truth. We are not consumers of worship, but we are humble servants under worship. We have been invited to worship by God, drawn to him by his spirit, desirous to come and worship because of the work that's already been done by Jesus on our behalf. Consumers comment and critique, but worshipers give and receive. Too often, I can leave the service speaking only of the feelings that I got or how things went, what went bad and what went good. And that is to my shame. We can look for something and say, how was the service today? And sometimes it means, how was the preacher? Did he meet my standard of likeness or not? On a scale of one to 10, what was it? How did it ring with me? Was his joke funny or did it land pretty bad? Some of them have landed pretty bad. I haven't heard any much laughter. How was the music? How were the slides? Did the slide person mess up and make a, make a mistake? Did we miss a whole verse of a song? Was the scripture reading delayed or was it not up there? Did the person not have the mic turned on or turned up too loud? All of these things. When we have come into God's house to worship him at his own initiation, and he has ordered how it is that we're to worship him, may I, as God's child, come with more maturity than just to walk away and say, "How man, that one slide... Just couldn't get it on time. That preacher really wish he would have prepared better. Wish this happened more. Instead to say, God spoke to me through that scripture reading. And I was tremendously blessed by the passage in Exodus. Even to the extent of saying, I don't know that pastor's name, but his prayer that he prayed for the church, when he said this, man, God really used that in my life. And I want to I go more, I want to go deeper into that subject. What did he mean when he said this? I might email him. I might talk to my life group about it. But there's a couple of things that were mentioned in the service that I need to look more into, that I just was, uh, I'm not up to speed on, or I'm really interested in, or God's moving in me in this way to repent of sins. The pastor didn't even speak of that, but God brought it to my mind while he was talking about something else. Has it ever happened to you? Completely different subject, but all of a sudden you're convicted of sin that you know you need to take care of. So being able to walk away as a believer from this gathered worship and say, God, how have you met with me this morning? What did you feed me from your word this morning? Jesus did not say the Father was seeking those who will worship just how they want and feel like worship was out of this world. We set a bar for worship that is often unbiblical or unachievable. If the standard is to make me feel like it was awesome. Genuine worship is informed and instructed by God in his word, received as grace from God, keeping us in awe of God and the gospel, drawing our eyes to exalt Christ and to serve others around us. Instead of asking, what did I get out of this? As we leave a worship service, we could enjoy a far healthier Sunday if we asked, how did I glorify God and serve my neighbor this morning? Hebrews 10.24 told us, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. That passage oozes with one another, not how was service today? How did things go logistically, practically? Was it fun? Number four, not only does God initiate our worship, control or order our worship, not only does God in his kindness and his grace receive our worship, but he also grows us in it. This kind of comes off the last one. But God builds us up through each other and our worship. Several passages in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. As we looked at the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we'll get to that in just a second. 
But 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 5, verse 12, and verse 26 all use a similar phrase. As Paul's referring to the church in this topic of speaking in tongues and prophesying, which is the context in which 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is found. We've mentioned this before, but we'll say it again. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is a great passage that speaks on love, but it might not be the best passage for you to use at your wedding, unless you intend to speak in tongues at your wedding or to prophesy. Because the passage is found in the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 14, which both of those speak on the use of spiritual gifts within the church. And Paul is admonishing the church in how to use them in the appropriate fashion. Smack dab right in the middle is, you must love one another. Even if your body was to be burned and you sacrificed yourself for the cause of Christ, it means nothing if it wasn't done without love. Love ought to ooze through everything that we do with one another. So that 1 Corinthians 14, verse 5, after 1 Corinthians 13, Paul writing to the church and he says, Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets. Why? So that the church may be built up. All of that conversation is not about tongues and prophecy, but it's the building up of the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 12, a few verses later. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. They're eager for this. Uh-uh. Strive to excel in this. He gives a whole chapter to loving one another, caring for one another, striving to excel in building up the church. A few verses later, 1 Corinthians 14, 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation, but let all things be done for building up. When we come together, what is it that we are called to do? Is it that we are just to come together and to have the songs that we like to be sung, the, the preaching in a manner in which we enjoy, uh, scripture readings and other things? Like we come away and we go, that was, that was fun. I kind of enjoyed that. Yeah, give me a yee-haw into the week. Is that the point of why we come together? Or do we come in with eyes towards God and glorifying Him and serving and edifying one another? Do we come in and say, how can I edify one another, build them up, stir them up to love and good deeds. Do I have eyes towards God and do I have eyes towards others in the midst of our worship service? Is this the point of what God is calling me to do? Remember, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is like it. You love your neighbor as yourself. Never once in those two is it mentioned, and you should get everything that you want. Matt Merker in his book on corporate worship says, corporate worship is discipleship. I thought that was fantastic. Four words. If you have any pen and paper, you want to write that down. Corporate worship is discipleship. We often think, and even in our bulletin, we'll put it under the category of just worship. But corporate worship is discipleship. And we ask the question, how is it, Matt? Well, Matt tells us, he, we often imagine discipleship taking place in the small group Bible study one-on-one -on -one discipling relationships and informal fellowship, and it does. But a church service is one of the primary settings in which believers speak the truth to one another. When we recite a creed or read scripture aloud together or sing a psalm or vocalize amen after a prayer, we're not just following the service leader's directions. We are discipling one another and building up the body to maturity. We minister both vertically to the Lord and horizontally to one another when the church gathers. God grows us in our worship. He is discipling us, and he can do so because he has ordered the way in which we are to worship. He knows by means of these elements, when you do them, you will be built up. You might not recognize it week to week. You might not go, man, that was flashy and cool, and we should invite everyone we know to come to Liberty. But week after week, year after year, you will say, I'm being changed by the Holy Spirit, by the preaching of his word, by the reading of the scriptures. I didn't know why we did them before. Pastor Bobby mentioned it that one Sunday. I get it now. And I am loving the scriptures that are being read now. 
Not looking for the mistakes in the slides or the person reading or hearing different stuff, but God is growing me. Growing me in maturity when I gather to come away with what it is that God wants me to come away with. We grow in maturity. Worship grows us. God grows us in worship. This happens every Sunday when you and I might sing songs that might not be our favorite song or our favorite style. Matt Merker again says, when members sing along gladly with songs that may not be in their favorite style because they know the songs bring comfort to brothers or sisters who are older or younger than they are or who come from a different cultural background. That's spiritual maturity to say, I can sing gladly even though this isn't my favorite song, even though this is not my favorite style. We all have a favorite playlist that we run all week long, right? My Spotify account has like 27 different playlists for whatever mood I might be in that day. But all of a sudden I get to come in, I get to gather with you and I get to sing our songs, not my playlist, not your playlist and not yours, but our playlist. Together as a church, we sing these songs to exalt Christ and to edify one another, not to just please us, not to please me or an individual but to serve and to care for others well. Worship is discipleship. Worship is growing us. So what if the service is boring? What if you're sitting there and you say, hi, I mean, I get what you're saying and all that. Like God's ordered it. He's initiated it. He's welcomed us. He receives it all. That's great. But church is boring. I remember as a kid, we had pews. The one benefit to pews is you can lay down in them. (laughs) What happens when you lay down? You sleep. I tried that once and only once because when I got home, my mom said, you were so tired in church today. You should just go to bed. I said, no, I'm I'm done. I'm all energized. I had a nap in church. She said, "Mm -mm, go to bed. The last time I did that. But what if the service is boring? A couple of pieces of advice that come from uh, an author. He says, a right seriousness about worship, a right seriousness, gravitas about worship is not the same thing as being dull. So be careful what you call boring. It is good to have gravity and reverence for a holy God. He also goes on to say, fun is not a spiritual virtue. We are meeting with the Lord of the universe, and meeting with God should never be boring. What if I don't feel like worshiping? Feelings and experiences are not the measure of whether or not we have met with God. You say, I felt like I met with him. I didn't feel like I met with him. Did you know that God is always with you? He never leaves you or forsakes you. When two are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. God is always present. We don't have to pray that God would show up ever on Sunday, ever in our life, never. He's always there. He's always present. It might be good for us to take that phrase that God would show up, put it in a drawer and shut it and just let that one go because it ain't true. And so being able to recognize that no matter what is being done, the scriptures are being read. And when they're read, I'm edified and encouraged. And I can grow from that. There is something here God is wanting to use to grow me. But the truth is that sometimes you might come to church and not feel like worshiping, but the person in front of you or behind you or beside you does. And remember what we talked about last week in in harmony with one another. We grow in this way. And there are times where you come in and you're you're just, man, this is not doing it for me. I just am really struggling to be here. I'm really struggling with the songs. And I just am not enjoying it. And I need someone. I need someone else to sing. And so you might be looking around during a song because we've got these two screens. And sometimes we cross eyes. Have you ever done that? You look at the screen, but you see somebody, and they're, like, they're looking at you because they're looking at the other screen. Like, this is really awkward. But all of a sudden, you might look at them and be like, that person is really singing. They came in a different mindset than I did, and I'm greatly encouraged by that. I'm greatly encouraged when I see someone not even singing because they can't that morning. Sometimes they're weeping. Sometimes they're just there, and you know what's happening in the midst of their life, and you're glad they're just here. Eyes might be closed. They might not be singing. They might be standing there, and you are glad that God is sustaining them. You might know other situations that are happening in life, but there are times where not my favorite song is sung, and other people are just really singing it and loving it, and that encourages my soul. 
And the same is probably true of you for others as well. Sometimes you don't feel like worshiping. We can repent. We can ask God to help us, as we should ask God in our opening prayer as that call to worship is given. We can ask God to allow us to worship in a mindset that says, God, we are here to meet with you. We want to glorify you and encourage one another. But man, I need help right now. The more mature the person, the believer, the easier it becomes for us to be edified, built up, fed when we gather. If the preacher is being faithful to scripture, Christ is speaking to us. May we use all the energy that we may typically use on critiques or comments to search topics that came up in the sermon or the service that interests you, to go deeper into the text in which was read or mentioned, to ask questions, be a part of a life group, and all these things to prepare ourselves to gather, knowing that this is God's worship service he has brought us to. He has ordered it. He has initiated it. He intends to grow you through it. And may God be pleased to do just that this Sunday and in the Sundays to come. Would you join me as we pray? Our Father, it is with great joy that we can come and worship you. As we have mentioned, especially we read from Hebrews chapter 10, you have brought this about by means of the sacrifice of your only son, Jesus. And in your kindness, you have shown us grace as we have come to believe the gospel, to rejoice with it. And yet, Father, sometimes there are times where we are struggling to rejoice and wanting to be here or to gather or to sing that song or to hear this or that. Father, would you continue to work in us? We will constantly need to repent, so help us to do just that. We will constantly need to be reminded to come in with eyes looking towards your glory and not our preference. And we will constantly need reminders when we walk in to have eyes that are big towards others and small towards ourselves. We ask for your help. I desperately need it. I pray that you would remove my critical spirit, my needling over details, that, Father, I'd be quick to be edified. I would be quick to see Christ exalting, being exalted in our service as the greatest priority, and the scriptures being read and sung and preached as what will feed my soul and the souls of those who gather with me. Father, we pray this for your glory, for the good of your people. In Christ's name, amen.